I mean, I'd served foie gras and caviar and lobster and wagyu beef, and I'd never seen anyone react to anything I'd served them like they did to that hot dog. See, it was a profound moment of revelation for me because that was when I started to approach the business from a very different perspective. Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Nanas and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Redefiners. It's Clark Murphy. Nanaz is taking a well-deserved break from hosting today, and I am flying solo. I'm pretty pumped up about today's episode because we're going to talk to one of the most successful and creative business leaders in the hospitality industry. What's his key to leadership? Well, it's bigger than the restaurant business. He's focused on going to unreasonable lengths to make guests feel truly welcome. And for him, that's good for business, and it's strangely addictive. He's owned some of the most celebrated restaurants from one end of the country to the other, including New York City's 11 Madison Park, which had four stars from the New York Times, three Michelin stars, and was named, literally, the best restaurant in the world under his incredibly exacting eye. He's the co-founder of the Welcome Conference, is a judge on HBO Max's The Big Brunch, and recently released a new book, Unreasonable Hospitality, The Remarkable Power of Giving People More Than They Expect. I've got to say, as someone in the professional services world where we're trying to always surpass client expectations, there's an incredible amount to learn from him and this sense of unreasonable hospitality. Welcome, Will. Clark, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Will, I got to tell you, one of our best client events for a group of board members was in the private room upstairs at 11 Madison Park, which, of course, you know well. Hmm. Just the walk upstairs, going back to the room, the candles, the votives, it sets a tone that we at Russell Reynolds, we want to surpass expectations. And I got to tell you, before we even sat down, people were like, whoa, this is special. (laughs) And how do you create that ambiance? Before the food's even on the plate or the menus in your hand, how much do you think about the visual experience as well as the food experience? So for me, and and I've said this a bunch of times in restaurants, and by the way, I believe this can be translated to anyone that does anything even remotely within the customer service business. In restaurants, the food, the service, the design, they're merely ingredients in the recipe of human connection. Our reason for being is to make people feel seen. It's to give them a sense of belonging. It's to make them feel welcome. Most importantly, is to genuinely connect with them. And one of the things that I think is true in anyone that has ever been on a first date or or just met anyone casually for the first time can relate to this. We all enter a new relationship with our guards up to some extent or another. And until those guards can be brought down, genuine connection isn't possible. And so how much thought do we put into that? I mean, a ton of thought. We, We try to approach everything with 
a lot of intention, all with one thing in mind, which is to create the conditions wherein people can connect with us, the people that are serving them, and more importantly, with one another. And so that connectivity, do you start in the food or do you start with the connectivity and come to the food? The food is just the product that we're serving them. Mm. It's nothing more. Mm. I mean, you think about when you go to a restaurant, the food doesn't get to you for, depending on the meal, 15, 20, 30 minutes. (laughs) If we're not beginning the process of connection until the food hits your plate, then we're doing a terrible job. It's with the environment, you know, like the design. You talk about the candles along the stairwell or the lighting level or the exact placement of art. That's meant to lower your blood pressure a little bit, give you the opportunity to put the world on pause, take a breath, get ready to engage. But more than that, it's honestly the people. It's the way that you're welcomed, the sincerity of that welcome, the the way that people engage with you enough where you're able to let your guard down to the point where you're open to actually leaning into a relationship. Well, you know, again, we're in the people business and helping select leaders. So you can imagine when we interview people, it's not that you want to let their guard down, but you do want to see who they actually are hmm. as a leader, as a, as a human being. And you're actually trying to get people to be who they are to enjoy this experience in your restaurants, which I think I think is pretty fascinating. So question, let's go back a little bit. How the heck did you get into this business? And you talk a lot about your family. Where did it start for you in the hospitality world, broadly speaking? So I grew up in the restaurant business. Uh, my dad was a restaurateur. My mother was also in the hospitality business, actually. She was a flight attendant for American Airlines when I was growing up. But when I was about four, she was diagnosed with brain cancer. And, gracious. Um, oh. and she survived it, but the surgery that she required needed radiation treatment. It was a malignant tumor and they needed some radiation treatment to kind of kill what was left after they removed the tumor. Now, this was back before radiation was as refined as it is now. And the lingering kind of ongoing damage of the radiation over the course of the next four or five years rendered her into a quadriplegic. Oh, And I, I say that not to begin this conversation with a downer, but because I think it's an important part of my narrative. I would think so. Seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about who you are. Yeah. Well, yeah. And also who it forced my dad to be. My dad was my hero growing up. Mm. I mean, listen, he was in the restaurant business, so he worked 14 hours a day, but still he would wake up early, get my mom out of bed, shower her, put her in her wheelchair, get her fed breakfast, go to work at the end of her 14 hour day, come back, do the entire thing with her in reverse and still somehow manage to find the time to be a good father and in some ways a good mother to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that no matter what he did for a living, that's probably what I would have wanted to do just because I wanted to be like him. And seeing him serve her and and feeling how good it felt to be served by him, I innately wanted to turn around and pay that forward to others when I grew up. And, I mean, if you grew up in the restaurant business, the only way you can really spend material time with your parents is to go to work with them from time to time. And when I went to work with him, I was just immediately enchanted by the energy that existed within the dining rooms of his restaurants. They almost felt like these little magical worlds in a world that needed more magic, where everything else fell away and all that existed was what were within those walls. And 
I'll tell you, at a very early age, and I, I have a to-do list that my dad made me write for my life at the age of 12 to, to prove this. But at a very early age, I knew I wanted to own restaurants when I grew up. You watched your father work so hard and, and persevere under difficult circumstances. Does this affect the amount of patience you have for the wealthy people who come into your restaurants with, you know, a little bit of arrogance or attitude or, you know, just the way they interact because they're, of their expectations? I mean, I'll say a couple of things. So growing up, I don't, and you asked me when I was a kid, like, how's this experience? This is so challenging. That wasn't what my experience was. That was my normal, right? It, it wasn't as if... Yeah. Yeah. It happened at such an early age that it wasn't like I lost something. That was what my life was. And I think that's informed things a bit as well. People can only base who they are on their own personal experience. I'm not here to judge people for being impatient when they've had it so good, right? I, I actually think that restaurants are one of the most beautiful and noble things we can do. And I say restaurants, but I really should have said hospitality because I believe anyone in any business can make the choice to be in the hospitality industry. People walk in with baggage. You can't control that. And I, I think we all have this human tendency when someone is acting like a jerk to decide that they don't deserve our best service. I think we have this beautiful opportunity, perhaps even responsibility Two, through the way we serve people, through the way we endeavor to connect with them, to inspire them to just be the best versions of themselves. There you go. That mantra for all of us in business, particularly in the speed with which the world moves today. So you go into the business, you're deciding to be an entrepreneur, you're going to have your own operations, etc. From that moment to this, separate from your father and mother's influence, is there some redefining moment that made you raise the game or decide to expand broader when you were winning? Is there a redefining moment in, in Will's career? One of the, the quotes, it's one of my favorites that my dad has given me is that adversity is a terrible thing to waste. I look back on my experience as a kid, my dad and I are closer than most father-son duos. And, and it's most decidedly because of the adversity in my mom's situation that brought us closer. He always taught me that you can't control what life throws at you, but you can control how you react to it. This story is going to feel like it's not that much adversity, uh, but sometimes I think that you can reframe things just to get yourself fired up. So at 11 Madison Park, I'd been there for a while um, and we had come quite a ways. Uh, we had four stars from the New York Times. We were in the process of getting three Michelin stars and we were invited to London because for the first time ever, we'd been added to the list of the 50 best restaurants in the world. And here's the way this list works. You go to the ceremony. It's kind of like the Oscars. Everyone gets dressed up in a tuxedo. When you go there, you know you're one of the top 50 in the world. You just don't know where on the list you're going to fall until they start counting down. And we got there and it was assigned seating. And I was trying to guess based on where I was sitting relative to where the greats were sitting, where I was going to fall on the list. I looked at where this chef was sitting and that chef was sitting and this restaurateur was sitting. And I was confident we were going to be like number 35. I'm sure there was some amount of preamble and thank you for Cummings before they started. But all I really remember was them saying and coming in at number 50, a new entry from New York City, 11 Madison Park. <laughs> I was like, damn it. 
whoa, early oh. in the game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'd come in last place. That, what I couldn't have known because it was our first year on the list and we were the first restaurant was called. The, the, the reason they give you assigned seating has nothing to do with where you're going to fall on the list. It's so that they can train a camera on you and project your image on a giant screen in front of everyone. Everyone else like musters a smile and a wave to pretend they're happy about their position. Yes. But yes I didn't know yes. that. We looked devastated. <laughs> um, oh, but I realized it like forced a, a smile and a wave and... Anyway, we left the party early, went back to the hotel, and and we started reflecting on it. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. We were very, very excellent. That's what's earned us a spot on the list. But we hadn't done anything to change the conversation. Other restaurants had been unreasonable with what they put on the plate, the sourcing, the technique, the ingredients, the presentation, and innovated food in a way that moved cooking forward. <laughs> my dad gave me a, a paperweight when I was a kid. I still have it on my desk to this day. What would you attempt to do if you knew you could not fail? He always encouraged me to answer that question honestly, saying that many don't for fear that if they say their most audacious goal out loud and fail to achieve it, they'll let themselves and those around them down. But if you don't have the confidence and conviction to say your biggest goal out loud, it's very unlikely you'll achieve it. That night I wrote on a cocktail napkin, we will be number one in the world. But the goal wasn't enough. We needed to know what was our impact going to be. And underneath that, I wrote two words embodying the idea that I wanted to also be unreasonable, but not about what needed to change. Instead, about the one thing that would never change, which is the human desire to be cared for. Mm -hmm. If everyone else was unreasonable in pursuit of what they were serving, I wanted to be unreasonable in pursuit of how we made the people who we were serving that thing to feel. And so that was when the idea of unreasonable hospitality was born. And that kickstarted our journey. To be cared for in a different way, an unreasonable way. I love that. And, and as a leader, what do you look for in the people in your organization to deliver on that promise or, or, or that, that challenge? There are many in my industry that believe you hire for hospitality and you train excellence, that people either have hospitality in them or they don't. I fundamentally disagree. I believe everyone has the capacity to be hospitable. They just need it brought out of them because it's not possible to know how to give hospitality until you first, A, know how good it feels to receive it, and then B, know how good it feels to pay it forward. I used to, when I was growing up in the beginning, when I first became a manager, I had all these long lists of questions I would ask during an interview. And I've come to realize that honestly, the best approach in an interview for me anyway, is just to spend time getting to know someone. Mm. Are they full of integrity? Do they have passion? Are they someone that I want to spend time with? I think it's actually one of the biggest issues with how people are hiring right now is the list of requirements is oftentimes twice as long as it should be, and they end up losing out on some great candidates along the way. No room for spontaneity. Well, yeah, and and there's no room for just seeing who you believe has potential and who you can invest in, which is honestly what a great leader is, is someone who can take someone and bring out the best version of that person. I've always believed in hiring people that I can spend time with and then nurturing an environment for them to learn the things I need them to know to excel at the job. So let's just pull on that a little bit. You end up in LA, London, New York, very different cultural experiences and country cultures. How do you create the standards? And something I, I, I worry about when I was CEO of Russell Reynolds, I want the standards of how we serve our clients 
to be the same in Singapore and Tokyo and San Francisco. But life's very different in Japan from San Francisco. How do you look at it in the hospitality world? The way I like to, to frame it is that service is black and white and hospitality is color. Service is thing that you serve and it's, it's how you serve it. Service for me is, you know, getting the right plate to the right person at the right time. It's the, the mechanics of the experience. Hospitality is how you make people feel when they experience that experience. Love that. Um, service should be different depending on environment, right? There's different cultural norms. You need to serve the experience that feels right for the place that you're in. Yes, a restaurant in Las Vegas should be very different from a restaurant in in Manhattan, which should be different from a restaurant in downtown Los Angeles. Hospitality, though, the sincerity of how you make someone feel, I don't think that's different. Right. Because it needs to be innate to the person giving it. I'll tell you, one of the things I've struggled with my entire career is the balance between trust and control. I'm a perfectionist. I want every experience to be great. I oftentimes find myself putting too many controls onto the team to try to make it as perfect as it can be and in doing so, remove their ability to bring their most fully realized selves to the table. When I get that balance right, the hospitality isn't coming from me. It's coming from my team. My role is to create a culture where they can bring their best selves to the table. And so obviously when I'm in London, most of the people that work for me live in London. They're expressing their own version of hospitality in a way that feels natural and innate to the place and similar to every other market. We'll be right back with Will Gadara, but first we'll hear from Hoda Tahoon, an executive director in our Miami office. She'll dive into customer-centric leadership and how it can serve the customers of tomorrow. What's your most memorable hospitality experience? The hospitality industry requires a particular lens on leadership because once you get through the tech stack, marketing, fulfillment, CRM, etc., you're left with complex interaction of person-to-person, employee-to-customer. But the data says customers themselves are transforming and leaders across the globe are keenly aware of what this means for their business. In fact, in the fall of 2022, 38% of leaders ranked changes in consumer behavior as a top five issue affecting their organization's health. To address this, leadership has gotten more complex and more is being required of today's hospitality leaders. Where the chief marketing officer used to own the majority of the customer experience, we now see that organizations are regrouping so that all of the functions are centered around how best to serve the customer. And new roles such as chief customer officer and chief growth officer, are on the rise. On the employee side, sustainability and diversity, equity, inclusion, and now well-being are considered table stakes. The W, well-being, is critical in today's organizations. Our new Wellness at Work report found that 25% of employee respondents agree that leaders encourage them to make unhealthy choices in order to get work done. As leaders, We must deploy, maintain, and measure wellness programs that positively impact employee experience. Our people can't take care of their customers if we don't take care of our people. To learn more about how you can bring in leaders that will help spearhead this transformation, go to russellreynolds.com slash insights. And now, back to our conversation with Will. Okay, so we get to the top. You're the number one restaurant in the world. And you serve somebody a hot dog. Okay, I don't, I don't quite 
get that one. Can you tell me the, the dirty water dog story, which I'm sure you've told many times? Yeah, yeah, I will. Although I'll say that was not once we were number one. That was the beginning of our journey to become number <laughs> one. So I, I got back from London and just spent a lot of time trying to figure out what does unreasonable hospitality look like? And we did a lot of different things. We we did a transactional audit of the experience, looking at every single element of the guest experience that felt transactional in any way, shape, or form, and addressed that to make it feel less transactional. I think anything that's transactional is inherently inhospitable. And then about a year later, I found myself on a busier-than-normal lunch service in the dining room helping out the servers uh, when suddenly I was clearing appetizers from a table of four foodies who were on vacation to New York on their way to the airport to head back home after their meal. And I overheard them talking and they were just going on about all the great restaurants they'd been to. They were talking about Per Se, Danielle, Le Bernardin, Momofuku, now 11 Madison Park. But then another one jumped in and said, yeah, but you know, the only thing we didn't have was a hot dog from one of those street carts. <laughs> and Clark, it was like one of those like light bulb moments from a cartoon. I, I walked as calmly as I could back to the kitchen, but then ran outside to the hot dog cart in front of the restaurant, bought a hot dog and then ran back into the kitchen. Then came the hard part, convincing the chef to serve it in our four-star restaurant. <laughs> but I asked him to trust me and told him it was important to me. And eventually we cut the hot dog up into four perfect pieces, adding a little swish of ketchup, a swish of mustard, and a perfect little scoop of sauerkraut and relish to each plate. And before their final savory course, which was a honey lavender glazed Muscovy duck that had been dry aged for two weeks, I brought over there what we call dirty water dog. <laughs> and, I and I introduced it. I said, hey, I want to make sure you don't go home with any culinary regrets. Here's a New York City hot dog. Did their jaws literally hit, hit the table? I mean, they freaked out in the most beautiful way. <laughs> I mean, I'd served foie gras and caviar and lobster and wagyu beef, and I'd never seen anyone react to anything I'd served them like they did to that hot dog. See, it was like a profound moment of revelation for me because mm -hmm. that was when I started to approach the business from a very different perspective. You, you know, you always hear about athletes going to the tapes and they've had a bad game to see what they did wrong to try to fix it. You don't as often as we should hear about athletes going to the tapes and they've had a good game to see what they did well to make sure they continue doing that thing. Yeah, That's where you put intention to intuition, where you take something that you did organically and turn it into a practice. Yeah, I mean, listen, I look at our business and you talk about transactional. We spent the better part of the last seven or eight years, having had four decades of really, really profitable transactions. And we said, after the financial crisis, our clients need the transaction to happen, but we actually need you to give really long-term advice about people and leadership because the changing nature of businesses is affecting how leaders are developed and how they are retained and how they succeed. Yes. So we want to be in the long-term advice business. But you get paid for transactions but you want to give long-term advice. So, well, there, there, there's less of a clear ROI on the long-term advice. You're investing in people and, and it's, it's one of the main issues that a lot of businesses face, especially as they get bigger, is they only, I mean, there's that old adage, what gets measured gets managed. If it's yes. not easy to put an ROI on something, people don't invest time in pursuing it. Whereas I believe actually the things that are more difficult to measure often matter more. So you talk about improv hospitality. I call it improv advice, which is building a much longer intimate relationship with a client you would with, with a customer. Talk more about improvisational hospitality. Well, so, okay, I went to the tapes and reviewed the hot dog and said, all right, what happened there? What do we need to do to make sure those things keep on happening? A, it was being present. 
which is a woo-woo thing often overused. But for me, being present just means caring so much about the person you're with that you stop caring about everything else you need to do. If you think you're a great multitasker, I'm sorry to say you're wrong. It's impossible to do two things at the same time and do either one of them as well as you can do them if you focus only on that thing. Um, If I hadn't been present, I wouldn't have heard the line about the hot dog. Two, I was taking what I did seriously, but not taking myself too seriously. A hot dog in a four-star restaurant is sacrilegious until you look at the way that it made them feel. And third, it required the acknowledgement that the most profound gestures of hospitality are ones where one size fits one. Mm. If hospitality is about making people feel seen, the best way to do that is not to treat them like a commodity, but as a unique individual. I believe I could have given that table a bottle of vintage Krug. It wouldn't have had the same impact as the $2 hot dog. Similarly, if I'd given that hot dog to anyone else in the restaurant, it would have been a disaster. Yeah. It worked because it was specific to them. Now, that's all well and good. It's what happened next that defined our culture and got us to the top. I met with the team and told them about that experience and gave them permission and the resources to start doing the same kind of thing for their guests. I backed that up with a budget and I hired someone onto the team whose only responsibility was to help them bring those ideas to life. This is where a lot of leaders fall short. They come up with a great idea, they give their team the idea, but then they don't back it up with the resources to make it a plausible part of the the culture. It's an idea, it's not an action. A lot of people have asked me the question over the years, How did you continue to push your team to get better and better and better over the course of those years? And I like to gamify things. I've always believed that if you can make striving for excellence feel like a game, you don't need to push the team. You just need to make it fun to play that game. And when people start Mm -hmm. to play a game more and more and more, you organically get better at playing it. You created a position called the Dream Weaver, whose sole job it was to create magical experiences for your guests. Yeah, That's the dream weaver. Exactly. I love that. In your book, you talk about putting aside 5% of your budget towards making these experiences happen. Because aside from a hot dog, you also turned part of your restaurant into a beach for guests who are missing their vacation on account of a canceled flight. You sent a family from Spain in an SUV to Central Park to go sledding to celebrate the kids' first time seeing snow. Being able to create those experiences must have been crazy fun. How'd you make it happen with this 95-5 budget that you were so focused on keeping? Yeah, that, that's the way I always manage my business. And it, it wasn't until this program came about that the 5% started working overtime. 95% of the time, I managed the money like a maniac down to the penny, such that 5% of the time I could spend foolishly. And I put foolishly in air quotes. Um because it's actually not foolish at all. It's with great intention. But it goes back to what we were saying. It's not dissimilar to you investing time, giving people advice. The foolish spending is the spending that's difficult to measure an ROI for, but it's actually the spending that defines the product, the culture, where the ROI, I think, is immense as long as you give it enough time Mm. to see it because the patterns are just longer. They're not as immediate. Post-pandemic, restaurants going out, brutal, brutal, brutal time. We all come back from the last couple of years, we emerge as different people. Your industry's hard, just the lifestyle. People want more balance. Can we have balance in the hospitality world? Can you have it? Yes. And I think that people aren't seeing the entire picture when they talk only about balance. So 
let me explain the two things that happened from adding the Dreamweaver, implementing this as a part of our culture, spending that 5%. Yeah, of course, the guests were happier than ever before, right? I mean, you're doing crazy acts of graciousness for the people. That wasn't actually the best part of it. The best part of it was what happened for the team. For the first time, the people in the dining room weren't just serving plates of food that someone else had created. They were coming up with their own ideas, and those ideas were directly impacting the experience. I've never met anyone that isn't more fulfilled when they're serving the experience that they have a part of creating. We had turned them from salespeople into product designers. Work was more energizing for them because of it. But also, we were all just happier because we were making other people really happy. And there is nothing more energizing than seeing the look on someone else's face when they receive a gift that you are responsible for giving them. This is the thing. <laughs> and I don't fault people for wanting to create more balance. I think it's important. But if that's the only thing you're doing, you're missing the picture. Because if work is just depleting your people, and then you give them an extra day off or a few less hours a day, then all you're doing is giving them time outside of the walls of your business to recover from how depleted they felt when they left work. Right. If you're also working things into the culture, you're putting practices and systems behind those things such that work is also re-energizing, then the time they have away from work is actually time off. Right. And it's not just recovery. And by the way, I don't think there's anything out there, there's no ingredient more effective to make work more re-energizing for the people that you work with than creating a culture of genuine hospitality. So you're creating hospitality, in essence, within the organization as a culture while you provide it as a business. I don't think you can do it any other way. You can't go to soul cycle. If the instructor's out of shape, they're not going to do a good job getting <laughs> you into shape, right? I mean, I, I think you need to feel something in order to have the capacity to make others feel it as well. Give it. Yeah. Um, you also, we talked in the, in the introduction, that you're a judge on The Big Brunch. And I think of those shows as kind of the screaming and shouting um, that one could be led to believe is the restaurant business. And I say the restaurant business on purpose, not the hospitality business. Yes. This show has been praised for kindness, encouragement, creative and positive environments and collaborative environments in the hospitality world. So how do you think about that? And how real is the screaming and shouting back in the kitchen? And Tell a little bit about the big brunch and what's underpinning it. So yeah, there, there are certainly a lot of kitchens where people scream and shout. When I was approached to do that show, obviously there was no world where I was ever going to be on a show with all the screaming and shouting because it yeah. runs so yeah. counter to anything I believe in. But when I realized that that wasn't what it wanted to be, I felt there was a real opportunity to show, I mean, television is a great platform to show people what's possible, to captivate people's imagination, to move the needle in a, in a fundamental way. TV is still the best way to do that. And I wanted to show with Dan and Sola, the guest judges and the entire team, it was such a great group of people that, that we did this show with, that you can create dramatic TV without being so lazy that you rely on what is classically considered to be drama. Right. Um, that someone's growth, someone being invested in, that there's beauty in that. I tried to be a judge in the same way that I've always tried to be a boss. I think that normalizing criticism within an environment 
is really important in any organization. So many people right now with the, the, the staffing shortages are so focused on praising their team and they're missing something important. Praise is affirmation, but criticism is investment. If you want to hire great people, they want to make sure that they're growing while they're with you. You can't grow in the absence of criticism. Normalizing criticism shows that you can give people constructive criticism. You can tell them where they're falling short, what they need to do to grow and get better without making them feel like crap along the way. Yeah. And, and I think the best leaders are ones that are able to do that because people, they want to feel good. They want to be celebrated, but they also want to know that the person they work for is willing to step outside of their comfort zone and take the time to invest in them along the way. I love this phrase, normalizing criticism and criticism is an investment because I think I see hugely tentative leaders nervous about giving younger people feedback, particularly coming out of the pandemic where there was uncertainty, anxiety. There's still anxiety because of the economy, because geopolitics. There's a lot of anxiety. But I think spreading that word, criticism is an investment, praise is an affirmation. There's a lot, there's a huge leadership moment there. Huge leadership moment. But by the way, and by the way, just real quick, just to, to put a point on that. I think the leader's responsibility is to articulate that to their entire team before the moment of criticism presents itself. Mm. To say, this is how I feel about praise and criticism. If you work here, you will receive both from me. And I invite you to celebrate the moments when I do each because it shows you that I care about you enough to invest that time. I'm going to plagiarize that one. It's it's an investment (laughs) of time. It's a good, it's fantastic. Okay, question, you got to tell us the truth. Does anybody ever invite you to dinner? I mean, who, like, who's going who's gonna to have Will Dara over to dinner? I mean, this is what I'll say is I like everything in moderation. And I, I say that as, a, as a, a sweeping statement about how I like to live life. Generally, I don't, I'm not a fine dining. It's not like my wife and I dine on caviar and foie gras every <laughs> night. You know, like I'm, bring me to In-N-Out for a cheeseburger and that would make me just as happy as a seven course tasting menu at Alinea in Chicago. I I found that my closest friends know how to serve me in a way that will bring me joy and, and they invite me there over still. It's, it's about the magic in the room. Exactly. We end all of our podcasts with a few rapid fire questions. You don't get time to think about the answer, just boom. So first question, I think I know the answer to this one. Who did you admire most when you were a child? My dad. Absolutely. What's your specialty dish in your kitchen? Uh, I make an amazing carbonara. Oh, there you go. Italian stock. When you've hired a new staff member, what's the first thing you want them to know about working with you? That this is an environment where they're not only invited to collaborate with us, they're expected to. Who do you turn to when you have to make a really tough decision? My dad, but now also my wife. It's the two of them. Last question. What's a reasonable change our listeners or I can make in our lives that could result in unreasonable hospitality? I would encourage everyone to pick someone in their life and do the hot dog challenge. Give yourself a budget, say it's 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and just give them a gift. It could be a physical object, a gesture, an experience, an expression that shows how well you know them and how much you care about them. and. Watch what happens. Watch what happens and how you feel when you see the look on their face when they receive it. Watch how it makes them feel. And without exception, 
everyone who's done something like that, who hasn't taken the time to do it before, will find themselves doing it again in life, but also in work. And the impact can be extraordinary. The hot dog challenge from Will Gadara. More power to you. Will, this has been fascinating. Again, for someone in, in a service business to listen to how you think about experiences, about letting your guards down to create an experience that a client or a customer would like to have, to listen to your dad as a hero and who are the heroes in our lives and do we bring them forward to create magic in the rooms in which, in which we work or we operate. Your father was right. Adversity is a terrible thing to waste. And unfortunately, we live in a world full of uncertainty and adversity. And, and so how can we take advantage of that? Hmm. And to say you were number 50, which would be incredibly satisfying, <laughs> and leave the room and say, I want to have an impact. I want to be more than excellent. I'm going to be unreasonable. Innovation can create so much change, whether it's around climate change, a restaurant service. Let's be unreasonable to become number one. It's a human desire to be cared for. We can lead and be decisive, but still show people that we care and that we have passion for what we do. Bring out the best version of someone in your organization. It doesn't matter if it's a restaurant or an executive search firm. And service, the mechanics of service are the black and white, but hospitality is the color. Even when we put lots of controls and perfection in place, you found a way to bring out the best, to create space for imperfection, so you found perfection. And what I really relate to is, is viewing anything transactional is inhospitable, my, my version of long-term advice. And you said to people, trust me, I will be present. I'll be present for the hot dog off the street corner. But you aggressively focus on being present. I think we should all take that away. And you have a sense of humor. Don't take yourself too seriously. And finally, as a great leader, give people permission and the resources to create something beyond themselves. Invest in everyone equally. You don't need drama. But normalizing criticism that praises affirmation Criticism is an investment of my time and your time, and we shouldn't be afraid of the investment, but give clarity as a leader to expect it and to give it in return. Um, and I, I think in this tender hook world today, we have to have criticism and feedback. <laughs> These are great lessons in leadership. Well, thank you for joining us on Redefiners. Uh, it's been super fun to get together, and hopefully I will see you in a restaurant soon, and I'm not going to ask for a hot dog, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time. Do you have a question on leadership, career development, joining a board, or other topics you'd like to ask one of our consultants? Well, now's your chance. Send us your question. Email us at redefiners at russellreynolds.com for an opportunity to have your question answered on the podcast by one of our experts. See you next time on Redefiners.